my only bone to pick, and this is a, a really small, slight, petty one, is that Inez, she's small, but she's kind of brolic. And, you know, the character is like, you know, you could have shown her doing a push up <laughs> or doing something to maintain, you know, because she had like the, the 16 pack showing for like the first half of the movie. It's like, wow, she must work out or something. I mean, see, how she's staying in shape like that. <laughs> Some people just naturally yeah. got it, <laughs> <Sorry>. you know. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> So welcome back, everyone, to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we just want to know Deanna Taylor's core routine, because I haven't seen my abs in seven years, and I missed them. So the movie 1001 has become an indie darling, creating buzz at festivals and with audiences, even winning the grand jury prize at Sundance. And to talk about some of the integral and recurring themes in the movie, I'm joined by A.B. Rockwell, who wrote and directed it, and then Carlo Bocchini, who you might know from a little old show called Ted Lasso, helps me solve a listener's etiquette conundrum about labels, when to use them, who deserves them, and how they can dictate the direction of a relationship. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. A.B. Rockwell is the writer and director of 1001, which is creating all types of buzz with audiences and festivals and even won a grand jury prize of Sundance. A.B., what's good? I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. <laughs> you know, it's a good day. <laughs> Happy to be here. Just like Me any too. other day. Me too. So I want to just get right into it. All right. So I dropped a book, 2019, What Doesn't Kill Makes You Blacker. And when I was on tour, sometimes people would ask me, how long did it take you to write the book? And I could have said two years because that's how long it took me to physically write it. But the actual answer was 39 years because that's everything. You know, it's my first book. It's a memoir. So all of that life experience had been building, building, building. And then I released it. And so like with this movie, it's your first feature film. And I'm wondering why this topic? why this story. It's a decades-long look of a relationship of a bond between a, uh, a young mother and her son. Um, it also takes place in Harlem. And, you know, for people who are familiar with, you know, Harlem in the in the late 90s, early odds, there are a lot of changes happening in that neighborhood too. And I, I guess I just want to know, you know, is this a story that has been in creation for many years, for decades, and even one thing to just tell it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you you articulated it really well and just speaking to the fact that even though the literal time you spent working on your book could be quantified, you kind of also spent a lifetime mm-hmm. gaining all the experiences that you needed to get to that point. And I feel like it was similar for me with this in which I feel like the story had been building in me for for just as much, not only in observing how the city was changing, but also in me just becoming a woman after coming of age within New York uh, and feeling like I had a full understanding of myself and what that experience was and, and could bring it to this story. I think what made it urgent was not only in me wanting personally to say farewell to the New York that I love and grew up with, but just seeing the human price of how the city was changing, seeing the way that our communities were being targeted altogether, and then realizing through my research that like, oh, it's not just us being a target now with gentrifications, which is the tension that the story, uh, the film explores as it progresses. But, oh, we were under attack the entire time. I think Mm -hmm. the work that I had to do in, in writing this movie helped me realize that Yes, New York actually never did love us, you know, as much as I might have loved as a citizen, a native New Yorker. So I think just seeing that and seeing what was at stake and being erased, especially with a neighborhood like Harlem, I wanted to put the human price, you know, put put the human connection to that. You know, people that have been fighting over generations to get to where they were. But I also wanted to contextualize me as a as a young woman, just wanting to contextualize the matriarchs of this community, like celebrating them, women that are made to feel misunderstood, not only in within society overall, but within our own communities, women like Inez. And I think just allowing people to experience through her journey, a lot of what we go through as Black women uh, specifically. I just really wanted to use this story to present the question that like, damn, we fighting for everybody, but who, who's fighting for us? Um, and I, you know, I think it's noble to call us like superheroes and I appreciate all of that, but I, I really wanted our humanity to be seen as well. And I wanted people to see that we are worthy of being loved and want to be fully loved uh, and not just needed, not just who you call when you need us to come save the day. You brought up a point about, you know, the idea that black women, you know, like have this inherent strength, inherent, like superhuman ability to endure, to have this stamina, this power. And I see where that has been meant to be a positive characterization, a positive comment, but it actually is like, you know what? No, <laughs> right? Like black women are human beings. Like it, it feels weird even saying this out loud, but you know, black women are yeah. human beings just like everybody else. And y'all are not built to endure things in a greater capacity that other people are. It's just circumstances have made it such that in order to survive, this characteristic has had to be developed, but it's not like some inherent natural thing. Like, you know, we could put everything on a black woman. We could put all this stuff on her and she will find a way to carry it at all. Right. And so like whenever there's a celebrity being interviewed and they talk about, you know, what they love about black women. And the first thing they say is like, I just, their strength is like, come on, come Mm -hmm. on. (laughs) Like, come on, come on, fam. There's one in particular, I don't want to name him, I don't want to call him out, but but yeah, it always fucks with me. But um, so one thing that I really appreciate about 1001 is how it was a love letter to a city, mm-hmm. to a neighborhood. And in that vein, it kind of reminded me of like Spike Lee movies, Scorsese movies, you know, movies that are about a people or about a situation, a dynamic, but they're also, I don't know. They also have this clear affinity for where they come from, for the people that populate the neighborhoods where they come from, for the language, 
for just all the sounds and smells that are distinct, you know, and unique to New York City. But you mentioned earlier that the city, that you recognized that the city didn't necessarily love you back. Yeah. The way that you loved it. So how does that feel? I mean, or I guess, can you walk me through that creating this love letter to a city that maybe doesn't have the same love for us? Or for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I consider it more of like a heartbreak letter or even a breakup letter. And I think that's what is visible the most in the way that I shape the story. But there is no heartbreak without first love, you know. Um, And and I do love New York City Mm -hmm. still, even though we're we're working through some things, you know. It's it's complicated, (laughs) right? But yeah, I think that it was really weird to reconcile the fact that Myself and so many other natives, not only as people, but also as artists, uh, have expressed our deep affinity for the city, our deep love for it, our deep passion for it. Um, It's been our muse. Mm -hmm. But what I realized is that, like, this place doesn't give a damn about us. It didn't give a damn about us during the time that I grew up. It didn't give a damn about us now. It actually never did. Like, and, And I think the movie, for me, it stands kind of, you know, like, I really had to take a deep dive into what New York was in the period, but also what New York has been as a city overall. I really wanted to understand the personality of the city and the ways that it has evolved in order to better understand what this time period that the move represents would would, would be. And, and, and I think that what I realized is that our relationship to the city, it has always been about like the progress of New York City being at our expense. And even within Manhattan Island. Mm-hmm. So New York City was a small settlement below Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. And as it pushed past that, the African-American population that was there was pushed <laughs> pushed up the island as well. Mm-hmm. And then when we settled in Central Park, we would push from there. And then when we moved over to the West Side, we would push from there. All that rubble and West Side story that you see, that was a black and brown community. So now here we are up in Harlem, mm-hmm. um, which became over-dense and overpopulated after so many people had to like rejoin the community that was building up there. Now that became our hub and that became the place where we built so much of our culture um, and overcame so much devastation. And so to me, gentrification was just kind of like the last straw of us having a stake mm-hmm. uh, on Manhattan Island. Um, and so now it's just kind of like, OK, now that New York has reached this like manifest destiny, now you don't need us. Like, mm-hmm. thank you for all your hard work and labor, but now peace out, you know. And so I think this movie was just kind of me reconciling that and me saying like, uh I'm hurt, you know, me wanting some answers. You got some explaining to do, New York City. Um, I think I was saying all of it, uh, but I think I just needed to confront that, that uh, I couldn't make another romanticized depiction of the city. No, no, I feel you. And so without spoiling the movie, you know, too much for people who haven't seen it, gentrification, it's like this unseen terror, Mm -hmm. right, that you know is there. You know is lurking behind the shadows, behind the camera, behind the lens. You know it's there. And then as the movie progresses, it becomes more present, right? With a character that's introduced kind of halfway, or I guess maybe 60% into the movie that's introduced, and it becomes a thing that changes the life of the people in the story, of the people in the movie. And I'm curious, you know, you talked about, I guess, gentrification in a larger context with New York City, and it exists in other Mm -hmm. cities in the country, you know, I'm, I live in Pittsburgh, I'm born and raised, and the part of the city that I'm from is currently undergoing, it's like a motherfucking <laughs> spaceship landing, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and just flatten out everything that existed before. Like if you, if someone was in a coma for the last 20 years, they would think they were on another yes. country, 
Mm-hmm. Right. It is, it is so distinct from what was there before. And so I'm curious, like, what's your personal relationship with gentrification, I guess, has been if you've ever if you've ever personally been displaced, if you ever you know, been forced to move out, what is your relationship with that? Yeah, I think for me, part of what drew me to want to tell this story in terms of the personal connection was I was living in Brooklyn and I remember just one day in particular where I felt like I was on the verge of like a panic attack because I just realized that like the walls were closing in, you know, on me. You know, I was that I think that's when it clicked for me that like no matter where I move within Brooklyn, no matter where I move within the city, that made me feel like I could enjoy the New York that I love. And as I knew it. It was all changing. It was all being targeted. And so I remember just kind of riding around on my bike and just being like, why does my neighborhood that I'm living in, it feels dramatically more quiet, dramatically less colorful, not only in terms of personality and energy, but also the people. I'm walking into these stores and people are treating me like I'm an alien, like I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. I think... All of that was really, really difficult for me. And and I wasn't where I'm at now. So it was a little bit more scary for me to feel like, will I be able to afford being in the city much longer, being in the apartment that I was in at the time for much longer? And I'm fortunate that life has been on my side, the timing of life. But if I was born just a decade later and would have been entering the new New York now, I don't know if I would have made it through that period. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what opened the doors for me in terms of my experience with it personally and the ways that I felt weird and felt, uh, you know, like my days were numbered. Mm -hmm. In addition to seeing people that were experiencing it to much, much more drastic degrees and more painful, horrific degrees, seeing what they're going through, seeing articles talking about the ugliness of it. And then, yeah, just going around the country, seeing how it was changing like all these neighborhoods and cities around the country are going through the same thing and becoming a lot more you know, homogenous because of it. Um, so I was just mm-hmm. seeing the way that, that all of the neighborhoods like Harlem and the neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights and all that, all, all of them are being shaped in ways that just really, really had a dark implications. You know, yeah. it just, it's yeah. just, no, no, no. I so I want to speak to that. You know, I mean, I think the yeah. movie definitely touches on it. Um, I felt like a space cadet too, just walking around downtown Brooklyn where I went to high school and just feeling like, where am I? It's like, it's, it, it's like the, the dramatic transportation, like I literally, I'm like this corner that I walked a million times as a teenager, I have no idea where I'm at now. Like if the sign still says these cross streets that I know, mm-hmm. but everything around me, I just, you know, it was like a culture shock. It's been difficult, but I think change is inevitable, you know, so that's not the issue here. And New York is ever changing. It was really just the fact that these changes aren't being designed for the community that existed there. And what is the price of that? What like what happens when you push people out? What happens when we lose places like Harlem that are such a part of not only like black identity and heritage, but American history in general? Mm -hmm. And to your point about the homogeneity, I think that there's this like grand misnomer about gentrification and about gentrified spaces. There's this idea that it is characteristic listeners, right? But that's not actually true. Parts of Pittsburgh, D.C., Brooklyn, Harlem, Oakland, wherever Black people were and gentrification happened, it all looks the same, right? Like it all is the same type of buildings, (laughs) the same type of lofts Mm -hmm. with no curtains (laughs) where you could look right into the apartments, the same type of boutique shops, the same type of craft beer, you know, wherever the fuck. And it's not a characteristic listness. It's a character listness. 
right, where the character of the neighborhood has been replaced, it has some of the same characteristics as a virus, Mm. where, again, it looks the same Mm -hmm. regardless of where it is. It just ends up replacing what existed before. And that idea of displacement is a recurring theme Mm -hmm. in the movie because, you know, what happens to the people in Harlem who are displaced and then also what happens to the people who are displaced out of foster care mm-hmm. or age out of foster care. That's also another recurring theme in the movie. You know, a central theme in the movie is the idea of what happens to these kids mm-hmm. who are in this system. You know, if someone doesn't take care of them, if someone doesn't make it their their life duty to remove them, you know, nurture them, grow them, what happens to those kids? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh... Foster care isn't my story. I think like like gentrification, I had my experiences with it, but I think the way you see displacement take shape in the movie, that was based off research, seeing what other people were going through or mm-hmm. how other people were being targeted by the slumlords and so forth that went after them. Um, but And I think foster care is the same thing. I had a proximity to it. Um, and I know people and I've seen how it affected their lives. Um, but I think it was great to showcase that in this movie because I think it, it fits so well in trying to show who are the most vulnerable mm-hmm. people when you think about the the antagonisms that are placed on our community throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Who's most vulnerable and who does the idea of home, who does the the idea of stability and who does that the idea of family, who does that mean the most to? Mm-hmm. Um, and Inez and Terry, they definitely, those are things that they all are desperately looking for, you know, alongside Lucky. And so I think that that was important for me to to address, as well as the ways that the city failed them. You know, the city prioritized a lot of a lot of changes that were supposed to be for the the better of the city. But mm-hmm. a lot of those changes were at ex- the expense of the citizens. It, it 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 was a lot of it was either superficial or it was commerce based. But it didn't prioritize things that community actually needed, um, the social services and so forth that actually would have improved these neighborhoods and these people's lives from the ground up. You see the commentary in that um, and how it takes place throughout the story um, and how the foster care system is or isn't, you know, being acknowledged. So when you were first writing this movie and, and fleshing out like these characters, in your head and you create the character of Inez, did you have an actor in mind um, when you were doing that? And if so, how did her depiction of Inez match up to what you anticipated in your head when you were first fleshing out and really conceiving this character? I didn't have any actors in mind. I, I knew that Inez was gonna be a discovery. So I think where we landed is certainly not where I expected it to be. And I was so grateful that I had partners that didn't require me to have a star or something like that. Because I was like, I want somebody who has the chops, you know, somebody that can really handle a a character with uh, the level of depth that I needed for Inez, the level of uh, craft that needed is required of an actress to take on this kind of role. But I also needed truth. I also needed to feel like she really embodied this New York City girl. She really embodied this inner city girl who grew up on the streets. And so I was like, where do I find that in Hollywood? There's not really much of that. And as much as I admire so many of the actresses that are in the business, 
I feel like we don't all have the same experience as Black women. And I didn't want anything about Inez to come off performative Mm -hmm. in all of her colors and shades as a character, but also her colors and shades as this underprivileged woman. So we looked around everywhere, and that's how I landed on Tiana. And I think that as complex as the role was, I think that as her director, I tried to be the best support system to her, giving her the tools that we need. So a lot of the colors and shades that I talked about was a part of the discussions we had in the preparation process, you know, she loves to talk about the fact that there was a rainbow script that she was working off of mm-hmm. by the time we, we finished the process. And it was a lot of conversation, just talking about the character, talking about her backstory, talking about what she's going through over the course of the film, but then using that guideline that we created, the way that I kind of deconstructed the character for her so that she had those points that she could tap into as she worked day to day and moment to moment on set. I think all of that was really you know, helpful to her. And so I think if I feel surprised by anything, I think I was surprised that, you know, I didn't I didn't see this in Tiana Taylor. And so I'm so happy that she read for the role and that she committed to this journey fully. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though Inez was on the page in many ways and she brought all of herself to the character and you feel the humor, you feel the vulnerability, you feel the toughness, mm-hmm. you feel the love, the nurturing, you feel all of that in Tiana's performance. At the end of the day, I also believe that Tiana had a story to tell within herself, mm-hmm. you know, and I believed, uh, you know, I believed in what it would be if she pulled it out. So I think seeing her actually pull that from herself, I was surprised by like, damn, girl, like <laughs> I think in the ways that she was able to interpret all of those moments mm-hmm. uh, was still very beautiful to watch, you know, because it still ultimately had to come from her. So was the character there and did she give me the character? Yes. But I still think that it was surprising and beautiful to see how she was able to interpret that and pull from herself and bring her own creativity in her interpretation of Inez, you know. She brought like this viscerality, like this tactile authenticity. There were times when I'm watching it where it felt like I'm watching like, I don't know, someone put an iPhone camera in someone's crib Mm -hmm. in Harlem and I'm not watching the movie, I'm just watching people live. I felt that everyone who was cast, particularly the, the principal performers really brought that to the movie where, again, it just felt like just so real. Um, and my only bone to pick, and this is a, a really small, slight, petty one, is that Inez, <laughs> she's small, but she's kind of brolic. And, you know, the character is like, you, you could have shown her doing a push-up or doing something to maintain, <laughs> you know, because she had like the, the 16th act <laughs> showing for like the first half of the movie. It's like, wow, she must work out or something. I mean, Tiana does <laughs> not she's staying out. in shape like that. <laughs> Some people just naturally got it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the movie, it just felt lived in. It felt like these are people that I've known, people that have known each other, people who are actually related to each other. That sort of just, I don't know, granular sort of feeling is rare to find in the movie. And, you know, I really appreciate just how real it felt. And, and also with the infusion of the music from each era, digging into cuts. There was a one joint that was played that I recognized as a sample from, from the Jadakiss, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> or make it. And I never heard that sample before. Like, oh shit, are we going to get some more? <laughs> some more digging into crazy deep cuts? <laughs> Another thing that I guess was recurring in the movie was colorism, where P... You know, it made reference to only liking, like, you know, Puerto Rican girls or light-skinned girls, whatever. And the girl that he has a crush on is very brown. 
his homies are dissing her because she's brown and, and that becomes a thing. And so can you walk me through why you chose to include that in the story as well? Yeah, because I think that even though this is a movie that people can identify with many ways, you know, there's so many things in characters and themes to hold on to and and womanhood is a part of that. But I think for a black woman's story specifically uh, and what it meant to be raised in this environment, there was no way to tell Inez's story without that being a part of it. And this is a story ultimately about uh, a woman who is desperate to be loved, a black woman who is desperate to be loved and fully seen and fully embraced. And you can't tell that story without colorism because it plays such a huge role in her life and in the ways that she's made to feel like she is not enough. Um, And we see that best showcased in her dynamic with Lucky. But I think for Terry, in the ways that he experiences how that shows up in their community, it also is a test for him. You know, it's like, is the man that she's raising, is he going to be more of the same? Um, Or is he going to be the one that fully sees her, fully shows up for her in the end, uh, in the ways that she's longing for? So I think it was was impossible. I mean, it's certainly personally tied to my experience in so many ways. And I think that I just, I had to address it here. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that people are recognizing that part of the through line. You know, the lucky character, without giving away too much of the movie, I'll say that he surprised me because I think that when there's an introduction of a man like that in this type of movie, in this type of environment, there's almost like you anticipate like, okay, how is he going to fuck up their lives? Like, what is he going to do to ruin them? And again, this isn't a trope that necessarily reflects reality, but it is a trope that reflects cinematic depiction of hood niggas, basically you anticipate like a certain depiction and again without giving away too much he had a very tender relationship you know he made some some mistakes and he acted like you know <laughs> like a hood nigga at times, but he also was very tender very sincere it was a real mentor and a real positive force to that household and again that's just the thing that after seeing so many of these movies you don't necessarily anticipate because you're used to the other thing happening. Yeah. You know, I think it was part of the fun of creating characters like Inez and like Lucky who were talking about. It gave me the space because when you meet them, these are both people with, you know, criminal backgrounds and they needed that uh, as a means of survival. That was what they had to lean on based off of what their upbringing would have been like coming up in Harlem when they were coming up. They were coming up in 80s Harlem. They were coming up in 70s Harlem, you know? So it was a very different landscape than what Terry's would be growing up in Harlem. But I really think through through Lucky, um, within this family, I was able to showcase, this is what we have the space to be like when we don't have to fight that fight as hard just to survive and overcome all that's thrown against us. When we aren't in survival mode, when we aren't trying to overcome just severe levels of devastation. You know, so I really love that, taking the idea of, how we're seen as as criminals and as thugs and all of that mm-hmm. and being able to say, okay, but this is the real people and this is who they are when they don't have to uh, lean on those things as, you know, as a means to just make it in the world and survive in this world. But I also think that Lucky is, is an accurate reflection of what I saw in Harlem, you know, living mm-hmm. in Harlem, I... I saw so many men that carry their kids on their shoulders with holding hands, taking them to the park, just being so loving. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see that on screen. And I wanted to see a man that even though he's so masculine and he's so tough and he's all those things, I wanted to give that type of man permission 
to be loving in this way too, to be loving in a way that is more vulnerable and open. Um, and something that I talked about with the actors, I think Will, he, he had that type of example of as a father, so it actually wasn't that difficult for him to access this. But I did talk with the men about masculinity. What does masculinity look like to you? Um, and of course, they gave me all the basic rules. Men don't do this, men do that. And I was like, ah, thank you. I love this insight. Uh, but what do you wish men did? You know, what do you wish men were like amongst <laughs> each other? And that conversation, I think, got a lot more like, you know, um, serious and, and you know, and, and they, they, they talked about that, the longing for love from a father. I think the, the issue with Lucky is that even though he sees himself in Terry, he doesn't see himself in Inez. He doesn't see the ways that she is just like him too and needs that love from him too, which over the course of the film, you see them um, explore that if they are able to get on the same page that he is much easier get to with Terry. That was, I guess, one of the more heartbreaking parts of the film where the young boy develops more of a tenderness for a man who is not there all the time instead of the woman who is literally there all the time, is present all the time. And you mentioned the rules that dictate masculinity. And, you know, we all get a pamphlet. Like, I don't know if you knew that, but we each get a pamphlet in the mail. When we turn 21, every black man in America, you get like, it's not, it's actually not even that thick. It's a short pamphlet. The font is kind of small and it just, it just takes you through. There's all the rules that you got to follow in order to, you know, to do that. Some niggas read it, some niggas throw it in yeah. the trash, but, you know, we all get it. Your movie has been nominated for a couple of things. One, the Grand Jury Prize of Sundance. Right. Congratulations yes. on that. And so one of my least favorite questions when I'm talking about my writing is a question from a white person about audience, because I think there's this idea, there's this anticipation that because I might write about race, because I might write about my experience living in the city or masculinity or whatever, that I'm trying to teach white people some sort of lesson. And so I get that question sometimes like, okay, who, who is your audience? Even though they're anticipating me answering, oh, it's, I'm trying to teach y'all niggas and that's not the truth. <laughs> I'm just telling the story that I want to tell. You know, when your movie gets this sort of attention, it is going to bring a certain type of audience to it, you know, a more mainstream audience. And I'm curious, like, not what you want them to take away from it, but I guess what has your experience been with that, has that been in any way disconcerting or like equilibrium shifting in a good or a bad way to know that you have this new set of eyes on your work and these new set of eyes that might not understand everything that might just see the trauma and that is like their only takeaway from it. It's just, and not the humanity, not the role that they play, but they just see like the black trauma. You know, I mean, I'm like, what has that experience been for me? I mean, I think that in the work that I've done up until this point, there's always been some balance in my audience, um, which I can appreciate. You know, I think mm -hmm. I wrote the movie from a very specific place and I wrote it and in a way that I wanted the people who I wrote about to feel seen and feel acknowledged um, and to have the healing and those dynamics. But I, I think that to do my best job as a filmmaker, uh, I am telling universal stories. You know, I don't I don't want to only service my community. I want to service humanity in general, you know, and so mm -hmm. I appreciate the ways that people can connect to the movie across backgrounds. And I hope that I hope people see themselves, but if they do see other people that may not look like them 
in the movie, I hope they can be better to those humans <laughs> that they are walking next to alongside of the street. And they, you know, I'd rather that, that a movie shakes up and shatters their ignorance um, so that they can see the humanity of the people next to them uh, more than anything, if they are going to take away something that is not their experience. But I think that in the ways that the movie might've been, you know, not fully understood from people that aren't, don't come from our experience, um, I think I always just had to understand that, like, some people will get it, some people won't, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think even within, like, wide audiences, some people super get it and they, you know, come to this movie with not only their full intelligence, but with their hearts. Um, even, you know, I'm surprised when I even get the colorism themes coming from them, you know, and that's really beautiful. Um, but then some people won't. Some people will really only look mm-hmm. at this movie on the surface level and some people will get really caught up in, you know, questions about craft and all this stuff and they're, and they're not they're not coming to the movie with their hearts. Um, and so sometimes their life experience, they're just not going to understand it enough. And I think I have to let go of that, you know, just trying to think that people will all get it mm-hmm. based off their experiences, their walks of life, that they'll get it within the first viewing as well. I think that like it is a movie that you kind of have to rewatch and enjoy a few times. But I think that the cultural conversation that we're having, especially once black folks have been able to get their hands on tickets and go out to see it, I think all of that adds to making people that may not have processed this movie in the best way the first time, making them get on board like, oh, so this is what this movie is about. Oh, so this is what that twist was about. Oh, this is what Inez is about. You know, like I think people and all the layers that people have been digging into the movies. If one person didn't get this aspect, they're gaining it from that conversation. And I, and I think that also makes me feel really gratified that the movie is an ending in a way that is conclusive. Like, oh yeah, great two hours. Now let me just, you know, <laughs> head out. It's like, no, like, I need to go sit down with somebody and have a conversation. I need to go on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Like, I need to converse with people about what I just experienced. It is that shared dialogue um, across genders, across socioeconomic backgrounds and across race, as we're talking about, that I think is is been helpful in playing a balancing act. Um, that yeah, some of the white folks, if they didn't get it, <laughs> they can they can come to come to to join us now. So, you know, it just comes with the program in a way. Yeah. A V, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you. And again, congratulations on your success. You know, looking forward to, to seeing what you create going forward. You know, so thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of you, Black man, and everything that you're doing. Um, so thank you so much for using your platform to, to have this conversation with me um, and to support what I've done here. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Up next is Damon Hates. The section of the show where I talk about shit that I hate because I hate a lot of shit. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This is a little tricky this week because usually the bones I have to pick, usually the things I want to rant about or things I actually hate or things that bother me so much that I want to get on a podcast and talk about them and then hopefully shame them so that they stop happening. But this thing, I don't necessarily hate it as much because it's happening to me. It is my fault. It is my own hair. Because, okay, I've been growing um, locks for I guess the past three or four months now. And I have I have a look at mine. I'm not going with the long locks like our producer Ryan Wallerson or, you know, other people that have the beautiful long locks. I'm not going for that look, but there is a very specific look in mine that I want. But I'm in this space now where I have like these in-between locks where it looks like for someone who maybe doesn't know me. It could look like, oh, this nigga's been trying to grow his hair for like five years. <laughs> That's all he has. <laughs> and so I have this anxiety or this, this self-consciousness about my hair for the first time in my life. I've never had a bad hair day before until now. Like the moisture, the humidity, my fucking, if I go to the gym and I sweat, it has an effect on my hair. It makes it shorter. It like condenses it. Like I'm... <sighs> I guess what I'm saying is I just want to skip past this. You know, there's a line in Ocean's 13 where uh, Willie Bank, who is Al Pacino's character, it's like, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you're giving me the labor pains. I just want the baby. Well, I just want the baby right now. Because right now I am dead in the middle of labor pains. I These short locks ain't doing it. I want what I want. And I'm tired of having to wait for this fucking shit to happen. So next, we got Cola Bokini, one of the stars of Apple TV's original series, Ted Lasso. He's going to come on and he's going to help me answer this question about etiquette and linguistics. Morgan, the producer, what we got this week? Dear Damon, at what age is the woman's one's father marries considered my father's wife and not my stepmother? Okay. <laughs> um, Cola, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it, my man. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You want to take a stab at this one first? Which age is she no longer your stepmother, but your father's wife? Yeah. I mean, it's two, there's two ages, really. You know, when you're American, I'm English. Mm-hmm. So over here, it will be 18. 
when you're legally an adult. Okay. And you pay taxes and you pay responsibilities. Also could be younger, you know. Some people have children very young. Yeah. So I think if you have kids, <laughs> she ain't your stepmom no more. You're somebody's dad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so I think in America it might be 21. Uh, in England, 18. But then again, you guys could really get along and you could be a thing where you... It's a very gray area. It depends on the relationship. There's a lot of ambiguity here. Because yeah. you're in you're in like this nebulous space. And I agree, like, okay, so the age thing is the age thing, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that you could have the one answer. We could have like the cut and dry, choose an age, 18, 21. If it's below 18 or it's below 21, mm-hmm. she is your stepmom. Mm-hmm. If it's above that, it is your dad's wife mm-hmm. or your dad's new wife. Yeah. Fine. And you call her Mrs. Johnson or, or <laughs> Miss, <laughs> yeah, Miss yeah, Sarah, yeah, yeah. whatever you want to call her. You know what I mean? You do that. But there are a lot of extenuating circumstances and a lot of factors to consider. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, let's say you are 14 years old, 15 years old, mm-hmm. and your dad cheated on your mom. And now the woman that your dad married was this woman, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to call her my stepmom. <laughs> yeah, right? you know it is. Like even even though I'm 15. Yeah, yeah, that is a complete right. And even though I'm still living in the house, it's like, nah, that's not motherfucking my dad married. Like that's not yeah, that's not my it's stepmom. It's true, you know. It really <laughs> right? is true. It, it it depends on the circumstances. Yeah. To your point, too, there could be a circumstance where you are of a certain age, you are like 24, 25, whatever, but you have a great relationship with this person. Maybe your dad has been a widower. Mm-hmm. for a long time mm-hmm. and he finally meets a woman falls in love with her mm-hmm. she's great with the family she's great with you and you are happy to refer to her as your stepmom it's true yeah there is certain cases where that is the case mm-hmm. yeah like i'm thinking of my dad mm-hmm. right now it's been 10 years since my mom passed in 2013 and so my dad has been outside like my dad for a little bit, he was in the crib, but he has been outside, <laughs> right? <laughs> going, going to church, going on dates. In these streets. Yeah, in He's these on streets. Facebook. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so if he were, if he were to marry someone mm-hmm. at his age, he's 76. If he were to marry someone now, they wouldn't be my stepmom. Yeah. You know, they would be the woman that my dad married. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then again, you guys could develop a relationship yeah. where she is like a mother towards you, and then you could refer to her as stepmom. <sighs> you know, it's, it's the relationship. It's the circumstances and, you know, the parallels of the relationship between you and said person. I agree with the first point, right? Like, you could develop rapport mm-hmm. with this woman, a real tender relationship, and that that's fine. And I guess maybe this is more of a linguistic connotative thing, but I don't associate these distinct titles with a level of tenderness. So I don't associate, okay, stepmom means you have a better relationship than your dad's wife, right? So I could have a great relationship with this hypothetical woman who's going to marry my 76-year-old dad, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but she would still be my dad's wife. She wouldn't be my stepmom. I, I might even grow to love her at some point. But there is another little side to it. What about when she's not there? Would you refer to her as your dad's wife to your friends or your colleagues or your stepmom? See, that's 
that's also tricky. That's another side to it. <laughs> I'm going to keep it a buck right here since we're on this topic. So I'm married. Yeah. It'll be nine years this year. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And I still don't know what to call my mother-in-law. <laughs> okay. uh, I don't call her by her name. I don't call her like let's let's just say her her name is Martha. I don't call her Miss Martha. I don't call her by her last name. Let's say her last name is Johnson. I'll say Mr. Johnson. I don't call her mom, right? Mm. When I call her on the phone, I just be like, hey. <laughs> That's the universal, I don't know what to call you kind of thing. Yeah. And, and again, it's just, I don't know. It's been a circumstance where there's nothing that I've landed on that just feels really comfortable. And it's been nine years. Have you managed to circumvent, Damn. you know, that for that long? I hope she don't read this or, or don't, don't listen to this. <laughs> I mean, I think she knows. <laughs> I think she knows, right? I think she recognizes that I Damon mean, yeah, yeah, hasn't, yeah. hasn't figured out what to call me yet. But I guess she appreciates other parts of me, so she lets that go. But but yeah, that's it's such a tricky thing when you're thinking about like what to refer to someone as. And you know, to your point, in a circumstance like this, you bring them to the scenario of, okay, how would you refer to this person to your friends? Yeah. Cause my dad's wife sounds complex, it sounds too wordy. When stepmom just is it's nice and clean and dry and quick, yeah. and you're done with it. Yeah. If you disliked said person, my dad's wife, you would make that time to, to call that person. <laughs> you know, this is not my mother. This is nowhere near a mother. This is my dad's wife. There's a person in between us, you know. It could even be like the woman my dad married. The woman, that is the worst. <laughs> that's the worst. That's like you really don't get wrong, you know. The person my dad married, you know. Just speaking of labels, mm -hmm. things of that nature. You know, I, I can't help but think of this conversation in like a relationship context, in a dating context. And like when you're dating someone new, mm -hmm. like what is the point when they officially become like boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever label that you want to put on it? Like, what is there like a plateau? Was there a point that is reached? I was literally thinking about this the other day. Like, when do you turn around and you're like, we're boyfriend and girlfriend now. It's not like you're in like, you know, school where, you know, you guys are like, this is my girlfriend. You guys start skipping around holding hands. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a grown up, you develop cringe. There's a cringe factor to it. I get cringed out a lot. I mean, like, can you be my... I'm just like, ugh. Or like, you know, <laughs> um, at my big age. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't. <laughs> but um, I believe where it's been a time where everybody's like, what are you guys? Because you guys, you know, she's been around quite a lot or he's been around quite a lot, you know, where it's like, you got to have the talk where you're like, what are we? And then you can just be like, we are together. And <laughs> from then, when you say we are together. We are together. Yeah. That's what we are. Together. We are a unit. <laughs> we are, you know, two become one like Spice Girls. Some people be, you know, seeing people for two, three years. And I'm like, damn. That's a lot of time, man. Yeah. That's a lot of time, but then there's a lot of layers to, to it. Very complicated. I feel like almost the best way, or at least an effective way, of having this conversation without having this conversation is to kind of get forced into it. <laughs> for instance, you're seeing somebody, you've been seeing them for a few months, things are going well. Yes. Your friends 
they're going well enough that they know your people. Some of your friends, they know some family, whatever. And so let's say one of your boys invites you to like a thing. Yeah. And then they ask, hey, is, uh, is your girlfriend coming? <laughs> and <laughs> what do you say? Do you correct them and say, you know what? Martha, I, I don't know why I'm still using Martha, but Martha's just the name that's <laughs> in my head. <laughs> Martha. <laughs> Martha's not my girlfriend yet. And then they'll be like, why? And then it goes back to, yeah. To your point, I feel like you, you should probably have a conversation. You should probably establish that because you could also have the, the cringeworthy situation where mm. this happens in person. No, that's if you put it off. You keep putting it off and putting it off. The cringe factor goes higher and higher, higher and higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, at, at this age, you know, if you ain't having the conversation at the beginning of what you guys want from situation, then it's never really going to be that serious, you know? You also have to, should probably establish, like, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean to put a label on a thing? Does that mean that you're exclusive? Mm-hmm. Is that the actual, like, exclusivity you know, token is that label. That's the whole thing, though, isn't it? It's monogamy. It's um, it's basically like that's the reason why people like are like, okay, we are together now. It's only us. You know, it's, there's no dating outside. And when you're dating, you can date multiple people, multiple people. And when you got a girlfriend, you you really shouldn't. <laughs> you probably shouldn't. You know. Yeah. It- <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and then it gets tricky because is the presumption of, of exclusivity, does it happen before the label or does the label make it like a thing that's okay, I did whatever, but we have the label now and we're going forward. I believe that the exclusivity comes first. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to like go from just dating multiple people to being like, oh no, this is my girlfriend. And then all your friends and everyone's going to be like, huh, I saw you yesterday with Shanice. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like, <laughs> are you confused? Well, you're a mess. But basically, like, um, I believe you're seeing a, a girl or a guy. And then after a while, you have to talk and be like, you like, oh, are we only seeing each other? This is exclusive. Yes. You know, a month down the line from that, it kind of naturally clicks, you know, like one day, like, mm-hmm. you know, they will be in the room. And then, uh, or, or like, you'll arrive or they'll arrive into a party or a barbecue and they'll be like, oh, this is my girlfriend. That's how it usually happens. So essentially you're saying that there, there is like this gray zone. So, okay, so you, you meet someone, you like them, you, you date. All right, whatever. Yes. There's no presumption of exclusivity at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're just in a dating talking phase. Probably not. Probably not. And then there's this gray space that's in between just talking and boyfriend, girlfriend, where you actually mm-hmm. start to, you know, maybe you delete some numbers. <laughs> maybe you start responding to some texts. Some people live there. Damon, some people live there for years. Mm-hmm. For years, they're there in that gray area in limbo. Just being like, yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> but ain't that. And you're just like, you're just in the now. It's in the now, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's like. You know, would you feel bad if you cheated? Mm-hmm. You, you would. Probably is. You know what I'm saying? You just you just haven't matured enough to say the words or to, like, take the final step. You know, some people have deep, deep, conceited trust issues, you know, with whatever happened in their past. And they bring that extra baggage onto the next person, which isn't great. That's the reason why, like, as a society, when 
you know, when it comes to dating, it's so complicated because everybody's got so much like twisted up wires from the last, you know, turmoil of a relationship or, mm -hmm. you know, or the last hang up or they're, just, they're not over this person or there's someone back when, you know, did something to them. So they, they, they created yeah. this whole yeah. brick wall. That is uh, pretty much why everything is so complicated. No experiences make it so yeah we all come with that baggage and we all come with yeah. you know our flaws and our hang-ups and our anxieties and roses and just trying to figure out a way for it to fit you know try to find someone who doesn't hate our anxieties enough <laughs> right you know more than me man you're, you're married for nine years you know way more than me man <laughs> no do not assume anything because of longevity don't that that's the, like that's the first rule don't make any judgments, <laughs> okay, don't make yeah, any yeah, assumptions, yeah. presumptions, whatever. So getting back to the question, you know, the label matters. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a simple answer. I think there is an age component. You know, I, I do feel like if you're still living in the house, yes. then you should probably call your dad's new wife, refer to her as your stepmom, if you're still living in the house. Because legally, legally she is. Yeah. And, you know, if you're under your, you know, your dad's roof or, or you know, your mom's roof, you know, um, you know, you have to abide by their rules and, you know, respect their, you know, choices and their partners and their, you know, you know, life's life. You have to respect their life. You know, and yeah. if, you, if you're referring to them as the person that is married to my dad or mom, then that is just, you know, that's just being rude. That's just being rude out of the way. You could just say stepmom and swallow, swallow your pride. <laughs> yeah, and if and and again, if that is too too steep up a hill to climb for you, you know, get 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 off your ass, go get a job, Ugh. go get your own place, <laughs> right? And then and then you go car. <laughs> if that is a steep hill for you, I want your problems. <laughs> All, right. All right, Cola, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Been a lot of fun. What you working on now? Oh, right now, just like um, just little 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 couple little jobs, you know, here and there. Like the the show Ted Lasso's out right now. Um, mm -hmm. actually, just getting back into it, you know, is just starting to warm up again. So I'm 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 really excited about that, you know. A couple exciting things in the pipeline. Yeah. All right, man. Wicked. All right, appreciate you. Peace. All right, just want to give a special thanks to Av Rockwell. Cola Bokini coming through. Great guests, great conversation. Thank you all again for coming through another week of Stuff with David Young. Remember, listen, subscribe for free on Spotify. Also, if you have any questions about anything, I don't have to go through the list. You should know by now. Any questions, hit me up at DearDamon at Crooked.com. All right, y'all. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Meredith Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing, sound, and mastering by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yazuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. From Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls-Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guang. 
Follow and subscribe to Stuck on Spotify. Tap the follow button and hit the bell icon to be notified when a new episode drops.